forever. Dog. In 10th grade, I played Bogart in our school's production of Play It Again, Sam, which was really bizarre. I beat out like white seniors, but I ended up getting it. It was crazy. I'm like, you know, 15 year old little black kid doing, you know, an impression of an old man from the 40s. Now, if that plane leaves and you're not on it, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but sure. Hello and welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or two episodes of the Disney Channel show Good Luck Charlie, which aired like two years apart. The kids had gotten much, much bigger in the interim. Really strange recurring gig. Our guest this week is Phil Lamar. Now, Phil is one of the hardest working voiceover actors in the business, and we're going to talk about that, Futurama, Samurai Jack, but we're also going to discuss his extensive on-camera resume, talking about Pulp Fiction and Mad TV. We're going to talk about developing his Ben Vereen impression. We're going to talk about a word that Quentin Tarantino might be overly fond of. Uh, It's a really fun interview with Phil. I've known Phil for years. He was actually really nice to me really early on in my career. Spring 1999, my sketch comedy group was down at the Austin Big Stinking Sketch and Comedy Festival. Spring 99? Yes, it would have to be. And he was down there with a group of uh, people from Mad TV doing a couple improv shows, and he somehow ended up in the audience for one of my shows, came up and paid me a bunch of really specific compliments. And it was like, I had no credits yet. I don't think I'd booked a commercial yet. And it was just this incredible validation from somebody whose work I already admired. Uh, I think I probably told him that story, but uh, I don't want to embarrass him too much. He did me a real solid back in the spring of 1999. It was an honor to have him on the show. Please welcome Phil Lamar. Phil Lamar, thank you so much for doing this, man. I'm really, it's really nice to see you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's, I'm very excited. Uh, I'm digging into my past. So I had to go pull up a shirt from high school just so I could try to remember things. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, you, sometimes you just let the, uh, the wardrobe do the work for you, I think. Of and, course. Uh, that has, uh, that has served me well over the years. A fun thing <laughs> to uh, mention before we really dive into it is that when you come up in conversation and you do, um, uh, I get to say, oh yeah, I've known Phil for years. And also, uh, for a while we belong to the same temple and people just stare at me. <laughs> it was like, did he say what I think he said? <laughs> he said what he said. And I just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Phil. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Phil, Phil and I did call Nidra together. How are you? Anyway. Um, <laughs> but the, um, uh, the big news, the big news on the Phil Lamar front is that Futurama is coming back in full force. We are back in full force now. I am pleased to hear that. Good. I'll be honest. I just got into the show over the pandemic. My son and I locked onto it and, um, and, and binged a bunch and it's so interesting, as is often the case with your gigs, I didn't realize it was you, um, <laughs> um, which is just a salute to your versatility. Thank but you. I'm I'm curious as to how the decision was made to to make uh, Conrad uh, Jamaican. Oh, well, that is actually a fascinating career story. OK, because wow. um, Hit it. <laughs> we started Futurama 
I think in my last season of Mad TV. Okay. And I was lucky enough that the casting person on who cast us on Mad cast me on Mad TV was also casting Futurama. Oh, no kidding. So I, I have to say that was actually the two of those are perhaps the most intimidating auditions I've ever had. Auditioning for Mad TV was being in a room watching Quincy Jones oh, right. four and a half feet away, you know, trying to decide, am I going to be on a series? And then for Futurama, you're sitting there with Matt fucking graining. Oh, my God. Although he is incredibly sweet. I've heard he's really good. I, I always joke that I wish all billionaires were like Matt Groening. <laughs> this, this would be a much better world. Um, but originally, the character of Hermes Conrad, the certified bureaucrat there in the 30th century, was actually a character named Dexter, who was just supposed to be a, a you know, accountant type of character. So okay. for the first... Actually... They they changed the name before we started recording because and I remember Matt saying it's like yeah I realize I got too many characters whose names end in er Homer Bender Dexter so your character is now Hermes great and then about three episodes in it wasn't clicking you know writing wise okay and I remember standing in the hallway after a table read and Matt came up to me he's like say Phil um, can you do a Jamaican accent. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. If you're on a series and your character is obviously not clicking and someone comes up to you and asks a question like that, that's basically uh, sitting on a, on a guillotine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you do a Jamaican accent? <laughs> don't drop. Um, don't drop. Yes. Yes. Don't let go. I can. I can. I can. <laughs> exactly. It's like I'd be hold the blade. Like I'd be fucked because I can't. But um, uh, <laughs> but you, thank God, can can pull it off. Carry on. And so I said, yes, of course, because I'm a black guy who came up through Hollywood in the '90s. You have to be able to do any accent that somebody darker than a paper bag. Jamaican, <laughs> African, <laughs> Nigerian. <laughs> Darker than a paper bag. <laughs> Yikes. Um, okay, so you can and do this. So and so we, you know, I started started doing the accent. Although the hilarious thing was, <laughs> I would say that whole first two season, every line was like, all right, Grayfield, let's do one more for clarity. Like, ah. <laughs> So I, I don't want me to be doing the accent like this. You want me to be doing the accent like this so you can hear your, you know, Harvard-educated humor. <laughs> no, it, a, a real, like a real Jamaican patois is impenetrable. Mm -hmm. Like I watched, um, I watched uh, Harder They Come a couple years ago, right. uh, the Jimmy mm -hmm. Cliff movie. And yeah. I got 10 minutes in. And I was like, oh, don't be a hero, John. Turn on the subtitles. And I uh, turned on the fucking <laughs> subtitles. Because I was like, I'm so sorry, guys. I And I grew up in New York, and I, I've heard a lot of different voices in my life. But this mm -hmm. shit was just, like, inscrutable. And it's English. Oh, yeah. um, but anyway, right. okay, so, you, but, so you, but yeah. you had to kind of strike a balance. Exactly. Although it's funny you mentioned Harder They Come, because that was my go-to back in the 90s when I was auditioning for Cool Runnings. Really? I, like, I like went and found a tape, you know, went and rented a tape of The Heart of They Come and, like, put my tape recorder next to it and made, you know, yeah. try to get all of that Jamaican accent and, you know, doing, doing all that, you know. And you're right. It's it's completely not understandable. 
Um, if, if you're, you're doing a, if, if, a, if you're listening, a real you don't yeah, if, if you're listening, you don't know the movie we're talking about. Uh, Jimmy Cliff uh, in a, a reggae gangster movie can't recommend it enough. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, but to my unseasoned ears, I needed I needed subtitles. What's What's interesting about Hermes Conrad is, and I, I wrote this down, and I I think maybe you've even discussed this elsewhere. You don't see a lot of authority figures from the islands. Right. Notice that, you know, like when mm-hmm. you when you when you see Jamaicans in Western media, not necessarily right. in stuff that is made down there, but in American or Canadian or British media, mm-hmm. they are very rarely the people in charge. It is often mm-hmm. I hate to say it is it often a cool running situation where it's a little bit of a white savior story. And it's really interesting to see. I see where it would dimensionalize the character so much more to mm-hmm. make him like the world's crankiest Kingston native. (laughs) Well, and I think the, the writers decide it's like, Oh, this will be some comedic conflict. You know, he is this, you know, OCD bureaucrat, but at the same time, he's Jamaican and saying things like great lion of Zion, you know? (laughs) So they got, you know, and cause I think before it was just another, you know, bureaucrat acting like a bureaucrat. And there was nothing funny. Well, it's hard to get 16 seasons off of, oh, he's really boring and that's his game. Right, right. (laughs) That's his big character trait is that he's interminably dull. Like you run to that a couple times in a feature, that's fine. But to do it Mm -hmm. over several seasons, I think it's harder to find life in that. Um, Yeah. Let's let's talk about, um, about, about your childhood a little bit because you are so Mm -hmm. good with accents. You grew up here in L.A., which I don't think I realized. I, for some reason, thought you were from the Midwest. Um, oh, really? Is your dad from the Midwest? Did I read that somewhere? Uh, my dad, yeah, my dad uh, grew up in Detroit and uh, moved to L.A. when he was 11. Okay. Yeah, All right. His maybe family that's just why. up and moved. Okay. Um, or maybe it's just because you're unfailingly polite that I thought you were Midwest. But you're, you're um, so you're, you're from L.A., I mean, how'd you grow up? Were your, were, your, were your folks in the business? It's such a company town. No, no. And it's funny. I was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, I may be John's only native L.A. guest, you know, because most character actors in most, actually most people in Hollywood are transplants. No, you um, meet very no. few natives here. You meet very few yeah. native. I had to make two uh, uh, in the form <laughs> of my children in order to hang out with natives. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah it's, no, it is a striking I, thing, but carry on. I always used to joke that there was a zoning regulation in Los Angeles that no more than two L.A. natives could be on a set. If a third guy comes in, one of you got to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I grew up here and none of no one in my family was in show business. I mean, is in show business to this yeah. day. I mean, which is the fact of most people in L.A. Yeah. Most people aren't in show business. I mean, I think actually the kids across the street from me when growing up out in the you know, after we moved to the Valley, um, their dad worked as a carpenter or something on the lot at Paramount. And I didn't, had no idea what that was. I'm just like, why does that grown man have a bike in the back of his truck? That's weird. <laughs> so he can bike around the Paramount set, of course, exactly. without bringing his truck in uh, through those narrow alleys. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so funny. So, yeah. So at what point do you realize then probably earlier than some, but at what point do you realize that acting is something you could do for a living in general and you specifically, Phil? Well, that's 
funny that you asked that because I actually realized that acting would be a career, I would probably say seven years after I was working <laughs> as an actor. Really? Yeah, because I, uh, a friend of my mother's, they went to junior college together and my mother got a job at IBM and my mother's friend got a job at NBC and worked her way up from secretary to head of children's programming. And my junior year of high school, uh, this woman, Phyllis Tucker Vinson, who for decades was the highest ranking black woman in television history. Oh, wow. She got me a job on a cartoon that they were using real kids for the voices. Oh, so nice. junior year of high school, I got my SAG card and got a job on the Mr. T cartoon. <gasps> Is that the one where you guys went around and solved mysteries? Yes. Mr. Yeah. T was the coach of a gymnastics team that went around solving mysteries. Phenomenal. So, yeah, no, it was terrible. I remember our, our director actually at one point said, come on kids, you gotta end every line up. It gives it energy. Oh, I'm sorry your dog died. No, you gotta give it up. I'm sorry your dog died. There you go, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> it was terrible. Did you get and to a, work- And a bad Scooby-Doo ripoff. Did you get to work with, did you see Mr. T at all during the records? Not once over <laughs> three seasons. Oh man! The What's first the point? season, they told us. They told us, yeah. Well, T's a little embarrassed about his reading. He doesn't want to do it in front of you kids. Oh. And then oh. the second season, they told us he's too busy. Half the time, we have to fly to Chicago to record his lines. Amazing. Like okay. And by third season, we stopped asking. Um, you uh, you went to Harvard Westlake, is that right? Hmm. Um, which is a so, uh, so there. A, that's uh, Harvard. Uh, I went to Harvard Westlake, which is a private school here here in L.A. Back then, though, it was Harvard School for Boys. It was an all boys school. Oh, interesting. And I don't think I realized that. Oh, yeah. OK. So so I yeah, guess there's not the much 80s. of a theater program there. Actually, there was um, our th- theater director, Basil Lee Drew, who is basically the reason I'm an actor, okay. without a doubt, without a doubt. Um Lee Drew was this really funny, cool, he was an actor and teacher. And I remember because he would have his headshots that showed him with his hairpiece on. And he also would never wear his hairpiece at school. Amazing. (laughs) Oh, wow. And he was like just a really cool, open dude, you know. And when I was in eighth grade, he decided to do a lower school play based on the Phantom Tollbooth. Which uh, was yeah, one of sure. my favorite books. Norton Juster book. I think I'm in my, I record in my yeah. son's room. He's closer to the router and there is a copy not six feet from me. <gasps> nice. Yes. I carry yeah, a copy is. with me everywhere I go. Nice. And it's funny because like, I mean, I'm not, I think by nature a performer. You know, like some people are like, oh, the little kid who used to dance all the time. I'm actually the like most low key person in my family. All of my cousins are much louder and funnier and. You know, like when we get together for family stuff, there'll be a two hour fashion show for Amazing. everybody else is doing. And I'm over in the corner reading uh, <laughs> the Phantom. Tolbert. So they, they they were doing a play based on a book I loved. And, and there's this one little character in the back, this census taker who's you know towards the end of the story. He's trying to stop them you know, before they can get to the end of their journey by taking their sense of loyalty and their sense of duty. But he can't take their sense of humor. And I'm like, I want to play that part. So I went in and auditioned, trying to get the census taker. 
and wound up getting cast as one of the leads instead. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. And wound up, you know, opening the show as my character, Talk, the watchdog, oh, yeah. doing a monologue alone on stage in a spotlight, you know, a two minute monologue to the audience. That was my first performance. And it was basically the shot of heroin and the dragon that you chase forever after. Yeah, no, that's uh, we get that story once a week on this podcast. If someone, <laughs> a, a kid steps out on stage and is like, oh, I'm sorry, this forever. Thank you. Um, yeah. But OK, so now that you've had like 30 plus years to think about it, you go in there with modest goals. This one thing you want to do, you come out with the lead or one of the leads. Right. What do you to what do you attribute that? What did you bring on stage? What did they see? This is no time for false modesty. You've had this is 30 years in the past now. What did they see that were like, no, that's our that's our watchdog. That's. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I mean, I had a good ear and, you know, I had an understanding and a love of performance. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, I had the TV guide memorized. That's part of the reason I love your podcast. Aside from the fact that you're so good and like, oh my God, how can he talk to everybody like they're his best friend and at the same time have it interesting to those of us who aren't their best friends? Oh, you know, you're amazing. <laughs> but I share that love of character actors, you yeah. know? And I'm like, I knew all of the shows and all of the people on them. You know, it's like, oh, Richard Mulligan's got a new series on. Okay, I'm going to watch that. And Reggie, so an adaptation of the rise and fall of Reginald Perrin. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking. <laughs> yes. It was his big post soap uh, role, right? Because um, I was a big Richard Mulligan fan too. May he rest. Um, uh, I completely, I, I, I too picked up TV Guide on the weekly. Mm -hmm. Threw it into my mom's grocery cart. Like, this is just what we're doing. Sorry. This is, I, I, I don't know if this will pay off. You'll just have to trust me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think what happened is, you know, one, I loved the book and I knew the character. Mm. So, you know, and I think he just saw, it's like, oh, this kid's got a little light mm -hmm. to him, you mm -hmm. know? And, you know, in, in a lower school play, <laughs> you know, in a junior high thing, the bar is not terribly high. All boys school, little light goes a long way. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, and I think somehow he was able to see that there was a performer inside of me, you know? Before and, you even kind of fully it, realized it yourself. Right, yeah. That's great. And it's funny because I spent the entire production watching Ben Peck, who got the census taker. It's like, what is he doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's amazing. So that's when that began. <laughs> that began shortly. <laughs> really, you're going to do it that way. All right. Wouldn't have been my choice, but you do you, I guess. Like, um, read the book. Read the book. Yeah. <laughs> so... From there, you you go to Yale, um, and are, are you yeah. at Yale? Explain to me how Yale works for undergrad, because Yale drama is the grad <laughs> school, but there is obviously still a thriving theater program in the undergrad program. Right. It just isn't necessarily Yale drama. Am right. I right no, about yeah. that? No, it, yes, absolutely. It, okay. There is at least back then there was a wall between the okay. undergraduate 
and the graduate drama program. See, I could give um, a fuck. I was an English major at Ithaca, but I love to hear you guys talk about the you Ivy guys talk about like the vagaries of your of your class system is fascinating to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's funny because uh, my my friend David Barron, who went on to be an executive Hulu, was able to take production classes in the graduate school as an undergrad. But as an actor, you could not take or audit even really? any of the performance classes. You couldn't even yeah. audit. You couldn't just wander mm. in like, hi, I'm going to sit in the back with my mouth shut. That's interesting. This is not for you. Wow, that seems um, really self-defeating. I got to say. I mean, I guess right? if they let one person audit, they got to let everybody audit. But if you like put a cap on it and like you get to do it once a semester, you can drop in on, you know, whoever is doing what. And uh, what's the harm? Well, I, I think really they were just trying to keep a distance between the classic undergraduate college mm -hmm. and the drama program. It's it, And in fact, you know, after our four years there, it was pretty much understood that you almost never got in to the drama program straight out of undergrad. I mean, okay. I think of the, the people I went to college with, what, maybe one? I mean, I auditioned, didn't didn't make it. I think Suzanne Cryer might have gone straight through. Oh, but sure. The vast majority of people, you know, they're like, no, 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 go away, train yourself, become a real actor, and and part of that may have had to do with the fact that the undergraduate acting program was not that great. I wow. mean, we had two two full time faculty members. That's it. And everybody else was part-time, like they would take the train in from New York after right. they'd finished auditioning or whatever. Right. Um, and I mean, there was, you know, one teacher, um, Nik Nikos, Niko Sakharopoulos, who also ran Williamstown Theater Festival okay. and taught one class sophomore year. And basically, if you didn't get into Nikos's class, you were done. The major was, was done, which is why I was an English major. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah, it was very strange because, like you said, I I knew I enjoyed acting, but I wasn't thinking of it as a career. But I auditioned. I mean, I applied to colleges that all had some sort of acting thing. Like I applied to USC, Northwestern, Yale, which had, you know, drama backgrounds or drama reputations. Yeah. Although at the time, you know, I never even visited them. But I, I didn't realize that there was a wall at Yale between the drama program graduate wise and undergraduate. Um, although I did um, audition for and got into Carnegie Mellon. So it came down to deciding whether I was going to go to the Carnegie Mellon, you know, acting conservatory program or go to Yale. And I remember saying to there, Yale, going, okay. major in English and dabble in theater. Well, that was the thing. I was like, okay, well, if I go to Carnegie Mellon, I will be an actor right away. Or I could go be a college student for four years and then figure out what I want to do. And that was the choice I made. So I wasn't committed to acting as a thing until years later. Um, sophomore year of college, I discovered improv, which, you know, opened up my brain and my mind and heart in such an amazing way. But again, back in the late 80s, improv was one of those arms of acting where there was absolutely no money. No. Like, if you were doing straight theater, there was a little money. Right. Improv, this Love is a the hobby. Art. 
love of the art yes. and that's it yeah um a couple things one what was the name of yale's improv troupe did they have one did they have an official one and it was called well um when we when we I got collect, there, I collect college improv group names. You may not know oh. this about me. I, I am a big fan of them. I love all uh, the shittier the wordplay, the better. Home improvement, <laughs> whatever it is, come at me. Right. Really look forward well, to it. <laughs> actually, we well when we when we I first got there, there was a sketch comedy group called the Exit Players, but there was no improv group. Okay. So my friend Eric Berg, who was from Chicago, and had spent a summer at Second City got a group of us together who he had done plays with and said, hey, let's start an improv group. And so we founded it and named it ourselves. And because he had studied with Del Close and Del at that point had just invented the long form called the Herald. Mm -hmm. And we were forming a Herald group. We decided to call our group the Purple Crayon. Phenomenal. After the children's book about a little boy who makes things up. That's kind of Harold in the purple crayon. That's kind of I mean it's super corny, but it's also lovely. It's also really lovely. It, it and walks no that puns. fine line. <laughs> it really and yeah, there's no wordplay. Touche. There's not right. uh it is not uh cast on a hot tin roof or anything. Um <laughs> yeah. there's like six of them. But yes, by we the way. formed the purple crayon of Yale, which still exists to this day. No kidding. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. That's gotta feel really good. That, like yeah. that's got like that. What a great legacy to have uh, to have created. That's so awesome. Um, well, especially at a school like that, where there were already things that had been around for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> kidding. Know? Yeah, so you got you have to like top the whiffin poofs for fuck's sake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, so, so okay, you mentioned the Herald, um, which is the mm -hmm. the very uh, um, uh, famous. Yeah, for, th for those um, that know, the Herald is a long form improv game where you take one suggestion from the audience and do a 30 minute, you know, improv where you just make up a bunch of different stories. And often, it, but there it, it's, it's got a very clear structure that you deviate mm -hmm. from at your own risk. So you kind of right. know where you're going to go back to in some vague sense. And it's put mm -hmm. into sort of three parts. And when I started studying right. the, the Herald in 1998 at UCB in oh, New wow. York, I, the first thing that everyone said to me, I was like, so I don't understand how this works. So there's these three stories and they kind of dove sort of come back. <laughs> yeah. Ideally right. they all kind of come back on each other. Like the end of mm -hmm. watch this segue Pulp Fiction. So <laughs> Phil, you're in Pulp Fiction. Um, there's a bunch mm -hmm. of groundlings in Pulp Fiction. I just watched it again mm -hmm. during the pandemic with the kid I thought could cope with it the most, uh, the older one. <laughs> The older one, I think, can deal with this. The younger one, let's mm -hmm. give him a couple years. But the older one, um, and she loved it. Um, really? And it is, God, that moment where we lose Marvin, mm -hmm. fucking almost 30 years later, it still plays better than any moment in any movie. I remember seeing it opening night in Times Square with, like, the most hyped audience in the world, October 1994, and that place oh, wow. just... I've never heard a gasp like that in like I and I'm <laughs> counting I am your father Luke. I don't give a shit. That thing <laughs> that moment destroys in a theater in front of an audience. How did that come into your was Tarantino a Groundlings fan? Well, I mean it's it's funny because yeah, I guess I can trace this all back to I was I'm in Pulp Fiction because of Eric Berg. Because I started doing improv mm -hmm. and when I came home after college I started taking Groundlings classes, not for my career, 
but because I needed to do improv. I'm like, yeah, I'm working this day job, but let me take 300 bucks just so I can have some improv in my life. Right. And well, I, I have to ask, up, what, was your, what was your day job? Um, I was, uh, I was doing, I was working for a, a court reporting company, proofreading transcripts Oof. and delivering them to law firms. Oof. And, uh, and I also did a little freelance research. This, this, this is a job that no longer exists because this was pre-internet. Yeah. I was going to say, this I is like to... 1991, 1990, somewhere in there. So no one's got email. Right. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, 8889. I would like do go to the UCLA, you know, library and copy things for people and then take their research back. Um, yeah. Those those were my day jobs. And I started taking groundlings classes and what found up wound up, you know, working my way up through the program and getting into the company. And, you know, Julia Sweeney was someone who was in the company ahead of me. Okay. And and then she, Julia, of course, got hired for SNL. Um, you know, on the on the back of Pat, uh, her her you know character, and the story aged like that, a fine wine, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> aged like fine coffee. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, trans people, why isn't Pat become a flag to wave? <laughs> why why isn't Pat an nope. icon? Uh, right. Anyway, I mean, listen, like <laughs> comedy's not evergreen. I'm not. I'm not here to beat up on Julia Sweeney. Anyway, um, uh, so you're but, saying so she but, gets on uh, SNL, and Harvey Keitel was hosting SNL um, after Reservoir Dogs, and Quentin came with him, and Quentin is a is a big nerd. Yeah, and Julia and her husband at the time, Steve Hibbert, they were big, you know, like music and pop nerds, and they hit it off. So when Julia left SNL and came back to LA, she was doing groundling shows. And one show we have, you know, celebrity guests come in and she invited Quentin to come be our guest at these, you know, gas, you know, cooking with gas show. I've done cooking with gas. Yeah. It's a fun show. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, yes. yeah. 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 It's very loosey goosey. It's very exactly. kind of, you know, everyone kind of has fun and, and, and it's like a, it's a fun, like hour fuck around. Uh, it's a blast though. It's really, it's, and the audience loves it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get up there and you get to do you and you know that people have your back. Yeah. You know, you know, even, you know, depending on, you know, the level of somebody's improv background and like Quentin didn't have a strong improv improv background, but he was actually really fun and really funny. And I met him because I was in the cast. And then when he was casting um, Pulp Fiction and this this story, I don't I remember. I'm trying to remember who told it to me. It might have been the casting director, Ronnie Yeskel. Mm -hmm. Um, when they were casting, uh, Marvin, Ronnie knew me because she had cast me in a tiny, tiny part on an episode of LA law, you know, back in like 90 or something. And so she said, Oh, Quentin, there's this, uh, a, a young actor, Phil Lamar, who, um, you should, uh, look at for Marvin. And Quentin's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure he's great. He's great. But there's this black guy at the groundlings. Look him up. So I was competing with myself for the role. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> um, uh, that's, I'm sorry, my son is frantically texting me here. I'm, I'm uh, oh, no. okay, great. Anyway, um, he's fine. Um, that, oh, good. I, that is a, thank you. Um, that is a very solid Tarantino impression. <laughs> um, 
And so how much do you, when you auditioned for something like that and they were trying to keep the surprise, did you get the whole script or did you just get your the Marvin scenes? No, no, we got the entire script. Because again, this is pre-internet and right, right. pre, you know, the fact that everybody in entertainment tries, tries to, likes to ask, act like they're in the Pentagon. No, right, right. Quentin sent everybody the actual script and it was like being sent gold. Of like, course. oh my God. And it's, it's fascinating because to me, this is the mark of great writing. You know, you go over a script a couple of times, you know, you know, scene while you're rehearsing it to audition by the third time I'm reading through it. I have it memorized. A good because, script does that. It's easier yeah. to get off book with good writing. Twas ever thus. Right. Because every line that is the thing that would naturally come after the line before it. Everything leads so, to another. Like you don't even have to like, yeah, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to like jam it into your head. It's there. It's funny because he's known, his writing is marked by these pop cultural tangentials here and there, but everything mm. makes sense. Everything is really there for a reason. It moves forward. It moves if not story, it definitely moves character forward. Yes. And the fact mm -hmm. that these people, even when they're talking about obscure TV shows, that is telling us who they are. That is right. telling us of why they they got into crime because they liked the crime, the criminals on Get Christy Love or whatever. You know, like it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's like this mm -hmm. really there's a logic to yeah. the progression of his his scripts. Um, right. And again, it was held up as like Pulp Fiction and a good episode of Seinfeld were listed as like the big pop cultural representations mm -hmm. of what a scripted Herald could look like. Three stories, right. three lines, and they kind of merge or dovetail a little bit at the end to one degree <laughs> or another, you know? Oh, that's um, funny. So it, it's always struck me as I'm not surprised he's he was fun on stage. I'm not surprised he was a decent improviser. Mm -hmm. I think his idea of the callback and the way <laughs> yeah. he... You know, the way he calls back the flamethrower in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. You know, and you wait like two hours and 40 minutes for that callback <laughs> so that you no one can say it isn't earned. <laughs> right. You know, there's just a really keen sense of structure that he brings to to his work. Do you yeah. still get recognized for that role? Um, Actually, no. No. The, the Pulp Fiction, the Pulp Fiction recognition is usually and this actually happened. Uh, I got a, a Facebook message. uh two days ago. It's usually people I've met at some point in the last 30 years oh, no. who saw Pulp Fiction before they met me. And then they see it again 20 years later. Oh my God, Phil, I've known you for 20 years and didn't realize you were the guy in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> so the, walking the... down the street doesn't really, uh, you know, it's not much of a thing. Well, can I, let me ask a question here though. Um, and mm -hmm. we don't get too political on this show. Um, right. uh, but I, I, I am curious, there is sometimes a fair amount of backlash towards Tarantino for his, what mm. could be, and you're nodding already, you know where I'm going with this. Um, yeah. he, he's, he's overtly fond of the N word for someone who, mm. who grew up in Orange County. Um, uh, were there moments and, and what bumps me the most about of all the times he it's used in his film is actually the moment in Pulp Fiction where he's barking at Samuel L. Jackson, which I think we can all agree would fucking not happen in real life. Um, <laughs> I, I can't mm -hmm. see someone. I know he's tall, but he's not that tall. I don't think I don't see Tarantino <laughs> actually speaking like that to anybody. Mm -hmm. But 
did that bump right. you at all when you were reading it in, in 1993 or whatever when you're when you're getting ready to do it um no because okay. of the context and it's it's interesting because i just you know was talking to an old friend from high school and we were like you know one of the small handful of black kids in our you know circles in la private schools and she's like yeah i remember there's this time where this guy said the n-word in front of me i'm like how come i didn't call him out it's like well because in the 80s and 90s we actually took intent into (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't simply the word it was did someone call you the word did they say it angrily it's like you, you know, right. and the thing is, Quentin never does that. Right. And also just for those of us who know him, we understand where it's coming from. Quentin loves black exploitation movies. I know. So he I thinks know. I'm speaking that language. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's as if he had grown up, you know, watching Hong Kong action movies and was making you know references to things in China. You know, we wouldn't call that. Um, you know, um, cultural appropriation. Right. We call it fanboy. Right. <laughs> and, That's... you know, and certainly, and back in the 90s, you could tell, it's like, no, this is not someone who's saying the N-word just because he he really wants to call you it, but now he's going to put it in the script just so he can say it. You know? No, he was like, no, Jimmy is buddies with Jules and they hang out on the basketball court and he's one of those white guys who gets a pass from his black friend. Right. Right. And I I, I was which, not which, one of which those Which is guys. something that only exists in the 90s and doesn't exist anymore. He had it <laughs> that, in the 80s That too. pass is invalid now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, turn that shit in. That's a useless piece of paper. You shouldn't even have it in your wallet. But um, the... Uh, uh, I did... No, I was not one of them. I did know white kids who at least were under the perception that they had that past mm-hmm. and i would watch sometimes and be like in my head you could hear a pin drop but everyone else was just going on about their eyes They're like all right well nathaniel just got away with that so i don't know what right. i'm yeah, probably like, not gonna no, risk just, it but i was just <laughs> doing the lyrics to my favorite rap song what Yeah, let's talk about cultural appropriation as we as we head over to Mad TV. Um, uh, now, you, <laughs> Mad TV at its dawn was so interesting because it came up during a real, what I have to say was a weird creative lull on SNL, and mm-hmm. SNL had been the only game in town for literally twenty years, and their casts were filled with people who were great but on their way out. Like Myers was phoning it in for the last couple of years there, or or like people like some of your fellow groundlings who were stepping in but hadn't found their footing yet, and then mm-hmm. the rest were a lot of stand-ups, right. who, and stand-ups are great, but they're maybe not always the best sketch performers. So they're in this sort of weird plateau, and then Mad right. TV comes up comes around, and there's a bunch of people on Mad TV with theater backgrounds. Um, uh, be it you, be it Nicole Sullivan, who else is uh, Dave right. Herman went to theater school. There's a bunch of people yeah. with like hardcore theater credits coming in there. Yeah, yeah. Artie, Artie was the only one of us who had a, Artie Lang was the only one of the cast who had a stand up background. Right. And he lasted what, one, two seasons? Well, he would have been there longer if not for the, his, uh, all right, you know, we felonies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, uh, what was that experience like to come on and, and like, I mean, it's almost, it's a real Dave and Goliath story, the rise of mad TV at the time, you know, you got, yes, you guys were on a half an hour earlier, but you were still a late night comedy show on Saturday night and begged a certain degree of comparison and survived and like people did well coming off your off your show what was that experience well, like to well i mean the experience was a complex one um wasn't the best work environment but there were definitely some amazingly talented people yeah. and as far as the timing of the show what you just said about snl being on a plateau i'm almost guarantee that that's why the show got picked up okay. because they felt like, Oh, now's the time we can take down SNL. Right. They're weak. Yeah. There's but a gazelle course, bleeding in the Sierra. <laughs> <laughs> right. But of course it's hilarious because at the same time, Mary Shear and I from the groundlings got onto mad TV. That, at, that was the same year that Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry and Chris Kattan got on SNL. Right. which was the new wave for them. It's like, yeah, sorry, they're not dying. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but as I said, though, those guys didn't find their footing immediately. No one on that show no. does. Um, Eddie Murphy <laughs> didn't have an amazing first season on SNL. People forget that. Um, right. So so there's still there. there I, my, my point still stands. There is a, there is a mm -hmm. definite shift in the entertainment climate on late night Saturday television. Right. Well, but also the other thing to keep in mind, you know, in terms of that the context chronologically fox was still relatively a new. fringe thing yeah i mean fox wasn't technically a network at that time fox was technically um syndication or something yeah because uh, i remember sometimes you know once the show was on we'd be out there promoting it's like yeah i'm on uh, mad tv on fox and people go oh fox uh, i don't have cable <laughs> like, wow it wasn't you know and also for financial reasons, you wouldn't get your residuals because it wasn't the same way until about oh. three years later. So Fox, you know, so we weren't getting the ratings that SNL was simply because nobody, you know, we didn't have the same number of channels, mm -hmm. right. you know, as NBC. There, right. there were a lot of cities that didn't have a Fox Just channel back no in affiliates. What, yeah. 1995. Affiliates, thank you. That's what it was. No, not syndication. They were affiliates. Fox was a, a string of affiliates. Okay. And um, and it's funny because it wasn't Mad TV wasn't looked at as some huge big thing. Uh, I remember when I auditioned for it, I was in second position. I had I had already done a pilot um, that I was so jazzed about, even though it was like I think Carlos Mencia's fifth failed pilot. Um, but it was, you know, set in a, you know, police station. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to be the new Barney Miller. Yes! I am the new Ron Glass. <laughs> and, oh, Harris. <laughs> and, you know, so my agent calls, like, oh, we're going to go in for the show. It's like, why am I auditioning for this? I already have a job. Wow. And they're like, apparently, apparently the network says you should go on in. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Oh, to be 20 something forever. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and then of course that pilot died because Carlos Mencia, and Mad TV got picked up, wow. and and I was on it for the first five seasons. You, you and did sketch comedy is it's funny because I mean any any hour show 
is twice as much work as a half hour show. Yes. But sketch comedy, even more so, because not only are you doing, you know, an hour's worth of material, but you got to keep putting on wigs and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 uh, a vaudeville review um, and yeah. there's nonstop changes. And you guys went pretty nutty with the um, with the costume changes. What I loved about your work on Mad TV, of which and I was I was a real fan of that era. There were some people I loved on that show at that time. Um, there was always a, a, a grounded quality to your impressions where, mm. yes, that's, a, we're doing sketch comedy, but like if Phil were to do this character in a biopic, it wouldn't be terrible. And, and think about how rare that is, you know, there's, there's sketch impressions and then there's somebody doing a role in a film about this character and the twain mm. rarely meet, but like. I I used to love this is so weirdly specific you're going to think I'm stalking you. I used to love your Ben Vereen. <laughs> your Ben Vereen laid me out. I was just like that is so specific and and he's got that weird head back laugh thing going on and how do you approach an impression I guess because I have no gift for mimicry and I'm I'm in awe of the alchemy that goes into it. How do you do you start with the body? You start with the voice? Is it all of, at once? Are you winging it? You you entitled little prick. What is your story? Well, it's well, it depends. If it's somebody that you know and love, like Ben Vereen, okay, it's already in my pocket. Oh, all right. You know, <laughs> Join us. You know, um, but it's it's interesting because one of my first, uh, actually, in tenth grade, I played Bogart in our school's production of Play It Again, Sam. Oh my god! Which was really bizarre. That's amazing. I beat out out like white seniors, (laughs) you know, who would. And it's it's funny because years later, my mother told me, "It's like, yeah, when you were auditioning for that, I wanted to tell you, oh, sweetie, come on, they're never going to give this to a little black boy." But. I didn't want to get in your way and just, you know, you, I, you, I figured you'd find out one way or the other. There's no reason, but I ended up getting it. And so, you know, I was, you know, it was crazy. I'm like, you know, 15 year old little black kid doing, you know, an impression of an old man from the forties. Now, if that plane leaves and you're not on it, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. And for the rest of your life. Yeah, I just closed my eyes, and that is that's pretty striking. Play it again, Sam is a Woody Allen play um, mm-hmm. that was filmed. There's a, there's a film, but it's the rare Woody Allen script that he himself did not direct. Fun trivia. Um, oh, I did not know. It, it, yeah, it's a it's a Herbert Ross film starring Woody mm-hmm. Allen with a Woody Allen script. But you can tell it's not a Woody Allen movie because it's um it's uh, San Francisco. They don't shoot it in New York. Um, ah. And here ended that boring bit of mansplaining. But so and and he's visited by a sort of ghostly apparition of Humphrey Bogart, who God help right. us all gives him relationship advice. So your role is <laughs> crucial. You are Clarence the Angel. You are um, all three ghosts of of Christmas's past, present, and future. You know you're. Yep. Uh, you are, are the the Virgil to his Dante. It's a huge part in that play. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious: was the kid playing the the Woody Allen role, doing a Woody Allen impression, or was he trying to put his own uh, spin on it? Well, it's funny because it was uh, my friend Andrew Terman, whose father Lawrence Terman was actually a, a huge Hollywood producer. Okay. Um, 
And the thing is, Andrew got cast because he was pretty Woody Allen-esque. Oh, okay. You know, he, had, he was a guy who was like, you know. <laughs> so Andrew was doing Andrew, which okay. was doing Woody Allen. Great. Got it. <laughs> and it, and it's funny because this this tells you a little bit of something about my, our drama teacher. It's like, that role has, I mean, that show has eight roles in it. Three male parts, five female parts at an all-boys school. <laughs> so where did you get them? They came from our Other sister schools. Sister schools. From okay. Westlake, Marlboro. Right. Oh, um, yeah. Argyle, Argyle Episcopal Academy, which is now Campbell Hall. Um, oh, all right. But but it's funny because, yeah, I was focused on the impression as well as the performance. And that wound up being a huge part of my career later. Yeah. And, you know, on Mad TV, the research department would hand us tapes. Okay, here's uh, a bunch of uh, footage of so-and-so. And you would go in and either, it would depend on the person. Like some people, it's more about their voice and some people, it's more about their physicality. I mean, when you're doing Chris Rock, you know, it's about the voice. It's about the rhythm, you know? Although when we're doing it on camera, you got to do that weird hand thing, too. <laughs> and I was always that... afraid. It's like, oh, he's going to hate me for that. Nobody ever mentions Chris' weird hand thing. <laughs> what, um, uh, another interesting uh, impression. I, I, I'm trying, I saw it on a list of, of your impressions, and I don't remember actually seeing it. Um, did you do Billy Crystal at one point? <gasps> Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's and, fascinating because Billy Crystal is in as part of our recent cultural reckoning. Suddenly, everyone realized that Billy Crystal was doing blackface as recently as like 2012, yes. and suddenly we're all like, uh, "How did we let this? How did this slip by us, cultural gatekeepers?" Um, but right. but so way to flip the script, Phil. Um, what? Yes. How do you approach? Uh, and I say this as your your former Temple member. How do you approach uh, uh, a Billy Crystal impression? Well, it's funny because I knew Billy's work, but I hadn't done a Billy Crystal impression. And we were shooting a bunch of you know film parodies, and they were looking at the script and the the schedule and everything. And they're like, "Oh crap, Dave Herman's the only one who can do a Billy Crystal impression." But we've already got him booked on anything else. We're we're out of white guys. Phil, can you do Billy Crystal? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so, yes, I did my white face Billy Crystal. Amazing. <laughs> and the thing is, yeah, I'm listening to Billy. And, you know, basically, I remember there was we had the scene from um, when Harry met Sally. He's like, men and women can never be friends. The sex part always gets in the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and for me, that was just about, you know, watching Billy. Although it's funny because it didn't occur to me because I knew he had done Sammy. But again, it was Back in the 90s, well, one, because he'd been doing Sammy for so long. You just took it for granted. And and yeah, it was just an impression of a celebrity. Right, right. You know, not mock. I mean, he wasn't mocking like, I'm doing Sammy, baby, do move. You know, <laughs> he, he was doing Sammy. Yeah. You know, who yeah. was such a big character. Yeah. Anyway, that, you know, you're really more focused on the jewelry than the makeup. Yeah, no, it's true. Back it's then. true. Yeah, the enormous glasses and the pinky ring kind of <laughs> captured the eye in a way that would be hard to explain to our younger listeners. Uh, you you mentioned just a moment ago that it wasn't always the best uh, 
professional experience, Mad TV. Yeah. Uh, you comfortable talking about that at all? Oh, sure, sure. Well, and let me let me say because on one hand, um, it was good and bad. I mean, one, they had a good eye for talent, mm-hmm. and they took care of people in a way that you know I hear from my friends who are on, on SNL. I mean, I remember you know that first season, '95. Jim Brewer was part of with that new cast with Will and Jerry. He did not appear in a sketch in the first three episodes. Oh, wow. And I remember in Mad TV, they would make sure that everybody had something in every script packet. Interesting. You know, it's like, oh, ooh, Deborah's a little light in this packet. Let's uh, let's put something else in, you know. Although the fact of it is that may not have been about taking care of the actors as much as we're paying them. They have to work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there's there's two sides to that, I suppose. Right. But um, uh, but but yeah, and and also the fact that we had three black people in our initial cast. You, Deborah you know, Wilson, our, Aries Spears, is he over? No, no, it was, with you? Uh, me, Deborah, and Orlando Jones. Orlando Jones, of course. Oh my God, Orlando Jones. You know, and and because you know, on Fox, we were coming off the heels of In Living Color and our producers, uh, Adam Small and Fax Barr, had worked on In Living Color. So there was a consciousness about the black comedy voice. Okay. You know? Interesting. In a way that I don't think you ever saw on SNL. Not until very Even though they had one guy, you know, usually, you know, somewhere in the back. Um, Our top story today! Um... That would be Garrett Morris's news from the yep. deaf for our younger <laughs> listeners. Um, that uh, ages, in some ways, is still really funny. Um, uh, uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, it. The people I know who've been on SNL describe it as the sort of pressure cooker that would eat me alive. You know, aside yeah. from the fact that I also yeah. don't do impressions, I just feel like that is not the environment for Johnny's head at all. And I, uh, it yeah. just sounds like a, a really nasty extension of high school um, right. with a lot of well, alphas reigning. Imagine, and, yeah, and, imagine the pressures of high school, but the schedule, like, wait, why are in the 90s you're using the same production schedule you used back in the 70s when everyone was on cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) We're talking about actors you admire a little bit. I ask this question Mm -hmm. of everyone. Who were some character actors you loved when you were you were coming up? um, you've mentioned Ron Glass already, who was Harris on, uh, who was this delightful snob character on Barney Miller, which was one of one of my all time favorite <laughs> shows when I was growing up. But who were some other guys who leapt out at you as like, oh man, look at that guy? Um, I mean, that's interesting because I mean the the people that, I mean Richard Mulligan is definitely like you know when he, on Soap. Soap was one of my favorite shows that Me you too. know. Me too. Um, well, Mulligan was such a clown, man. He had like a clown right. body, but it still worked in the re- relatively close confines of TV. Um, yes. He was amazing I to know. watch. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how he did that. Um, but yeah, uh, Richard Mulligan, Ron Glass, Ken Berry. Um, Ken Berry from F Troop? F Troop. F Troop yeah. was one of my favorite shows growing up. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, 
it's funny because I enjoyed Gilligan's Island and I Love Lucy, but none of those actors really like, you know, I loved, you know, um, I mean, obviously there are the, the bigger, the bigger ones, you know, Henry Winkler, you oh, know, God. who I just was always amazed by and continue to be. Oh God. Yes. You His know? work on Barry is fantastic. His, right? his stuff on Barry is so good. And let it be said, let me be the gazillionth person to mention this. One of the nicest guys you will ever meet in this town. I mean, Absolutely. just like could be is like five foot three could be a real prick is not. Right. <laughs> no, um, no. Well, yeah, you know, he's he's incredible. One, the fact that, yes, a little, you know, <laughs> Jewish guy made you believe he was the toughest Italian guy in Milwaukee. Yeah. For a yeah. decade. For a decade. And we didn't question a goddamn thing. Um, no, it's like, you know, nope, he, he can kick everybody on that set's ass and sleep with all of their wives. Absolutely. <laughs> and he can also get at the hop by Danny and the juniors by just hitting that machine over in the corner. Um, there is a, a, there is a story that, you know, there's that moment in the credit sequence of happy days where he, he takes out his comb and checks his hair and he's about to comb it. And then right. he realizes it's perfect and puts it back in. Apparently mm -hmm. he, uh, Gary Marshall asked him to wander around the room during his audition and just walk Ooh. like Fonzie walks. And at one point, Gary was like, hey, can you uh, can you uh, check your hair? Uh, can you comb your hair? And he did that and it made it into the opening credits. Oh. I love that. Um, oh, my yeah, God. So it, it's 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 um, yeah, we're, we're incredibly similar in our tastes because I loved all those guys. Were you a Tim Reed fan? Yes. Tim Reed from WKRP, absolutely. Venus Flytrap. Oh, yeah, WKR WKRP was one of my my favorite shows. Yeah. Tim Howard Hesseman. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, it's it's interesting because John Ritter on Three's Company was as a god to me. No, it's and funny. He's a huge influence on a ton of comedic actors I know. As much as that show was critically reviled at its time, yeah. everyone gives uh, it up for John Ritter. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he took terrible scripts about <laughs> nothing and made them entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I'm thinking about Actually, these are two people I got to work with, um, Michael McKeon and David Lander. Oh, you know, Lenny and Squiggy, on, of course. On Lenny and Squiggy. I don't know. I mean, I love Cindy Williams. I love Penny Marshall, too. But when Lenny and Squiggy would come in, it's Oh, my God. <laughs> Hello. Oh, my right? Lord. Oh, it just I mean, Actually, I just did something with Michael McKeon the other day. I did a reading, and I had to literally hold myself back from saying, Hello. When every time he walked into the room, I don't know I'm how like, you did it. I don't, I don't, I don't. And, and, and we're not even talking about spinal tap, it, uh, you know, right? also, you know, I mean, I, I have the, oh, it's the patron saint of quality footwear. I, I don't even, how do you, how do you control yourself on, he had to cancel on us one time or we had to get, we, we, oh, really? we were unable to close the deal, getting him interviewed on this show. Oh, no. And there was a part of me that was filled with relief. Cause I was like, I don't know how I'm going to hold my shit together for Michael McKean. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know where my yeah. professionalism is going to go. Um, right. I know. I, I wanna, I Cause I, I actually couldn't keep my, I couldn't keep myself from completely davening to him about his performance on better call Saul. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he, <sighs> he's so wildly versatile. 
right. and has done so much amazing iconic stuff that we almost he's like the weather at this point we just sort of take him for granted you know he's like he's like mm-hmm. oh the weather's really nice today well it's LA oh Michael McKean's awesome in this well it's Michael McKean <laughs> you know yes. uh, oh Robert Gu- Robert Guillaume was another uh, um, yeah. massive influence again oh back to soap God. yeah yeah <laughs> but no so but the show. dryness there the dryness yes. of Robert Guillaume and his ability to let a joke just kind of fall out of the side of his mouth like that yes. was mm-hmm. a stu- so much of my smart assery comes from Benson, both on soap and in the spinoff. <laughs> well, and just the fact that he was able to, it's like, oh my God, like there were so few black men at the center of sitcoms back in that time, yeah. you know? And yeah. it's like, I mean, there are, and on soap, there were hundreds of things that could have been spun off. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But you could say, it's like, no, that made sense. Yeah, you know, Let's absolutely. see more Benson. Yeah, and to put him in the bumbling governor's mansion was a real inspired stroke. Yes. Of, I mean, that's fucking, that's a Commedia dell'arte once a week. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. cool. Um, uh, yeah, I, talk about I met sit- him one time, and yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was on that thing like, don't say Benson. Don't say Benson. That's just going to make him feel old. That's just going to make him feel old. Because um, I was, we, were, we were recording at the same studio. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm like, ah, he did Phantom of the Opera here he in L.A. The first black man to play the role. And I'm like, because, because you know, it's like, okay, you have a celebrity of that big. You know, I go, oh, my God, you were so great on Benson. I'm like, no, no. Let me give him a compliment he will appreciate. Yes. And that's the secret trick, isn't it? You come to somebody if you've seen yep. them, if you got a theater credit, that is the yes. magic. That and let me let if you mm-hmm. if you approach an actor, they'll be perfectly polite to you if you talk about the big ones. That's fine, but if you want to talk to them, mention a theater credit because that's something you know. That's a that's a <laughs> tiny little thing that only a few people saw in the grand scheme. Yeah, he he was Robert mm-hmm. uh, uh, Robert Guillaume was the first black Phantom of the Opera in, in Andrew Lloyd yeah. Webber's show. Um, people, uh, he didn't do it. He did it in LA. Did the Amundsen, I want to say. Um, and it's so. a, and it's a, it's a fun little bit of musical theater, uh, trivia. Hey, let's talk about Samurai Jack. Um, oh, nice. which is such a, such an amazing piece of work. It was not what I expected at all. I thought it was going to be much drier and more ironic given oh. the art style, but it's very, mm-hmm. very earnest and almost Shakespearean at times. Mm-hmm. especially the way you're reading it. Um, how did that come to you? Um, it was just um, an audition. And it was interesting because it was a Cartoon Network show and I went into audition and met this guy, Gendy Tartakovsky, who I didn't really know his work. He had worked on Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's Laboratory, but those were little yeah. kid shows that I wasn't familiar with. But this was also a time when Gendy was jumping off from that part of the animation world into a completely different time. And I auditioned for him and I remember he kept saying, less, less, pull it back. Wow. You know? In animation. And so, it, yeah. Which, especially at Cartoon Network, you know, when yeah. they were doing Ed, Ed, Ned, everything was loud and yammery. And he was doing a show. I mean, our first episode has like nine and a half minutes of silence. It's a lawn training which, montage. And it's in, I was right? watching, I was like, I can't believe what I'm looking at right now. This is so mm-hmm. beautifully done um, yeah. and and completely devoid of dialogue. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how he does it, but he, 
He tells the story as much with color, music, mm-hmm. sound, mm-hmm. as he does with dialogue and action. Yeah. Most other cartoons are all about dialogue and action. Yeah. But he's 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 telling the story with all of that stuff. And so yeah, it was it was such an amazing thing to be a part of. And I, I although it's funny because when the whole, you know, Kristen Bell and uh, Jenny Slate, uh, you know, cross-racial casting stuff hit uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Th- there were all of these, you know, right-wingers online citing me. Oh, God. And it's like, well, Phil Lamar plays white characters and Japanese characters. How come they can't play black characters? I'm like, oh. not the same thing. There is yeah. not a long negative history of black people portraying Asian people in a mocking way. So yeah. different thing, completely different thing. Yeah. False equivalence. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, this is not, this is, I mean, we, you, we have decades of Mickey Rooney to undo in this regard. Um, we have decades. Although I, I do, I do remember thinking at the time when I got cast, I was like, yeah. Oh, I wonder if, me being black helped me, you know, get cast in the role because back in the early, you know, back in the nineties, two thousands, you know, it's funny because people are looking at these casting decisions from 20 years ago through a 2022 lens. It's like the, the ethnicity of the actor only mattered if it were the, if it was the lead. Right. For all of these right. secondary characters, the daughter, this Doctor Hibbert on The Simpsons, right, it never right. occurred to anybody. It's like, well, what co- what color are we drawing that one? Right, Let's bring right. somebody in that color. Yeah. No. But if it's a lead, you know people are going to know who the lead actor is, and so there is, you know, you have to consider that. Right. And I wondered, like, because you know, if you had cast a white person as Samurai Jack, it would have fallen into that you know breakfast at tiffany's line and how could you cut yourself off from that you know you're not do that by casting someone of color right right you're not doing a voice you close your eyes and you're not like oh that's clearly a japanese guy speaking english you don't necessarily get that sound from it what do you base samurai what was samurai jack's voice based on because you don't have there's no great samurai movies in English. So you can't really go off of those vocal patterns. You know, you can't do Toshiro right. Mifune because he's speaking Japanese. So what do you, where do you go to for something like that? Well, it was interesting because we had decided that he should, you know, he's growing up in ancient Japan and then moving to the future. Right. We want to bring some of Japan with us. Okay. So we wanted him to have something of an accent. Okay. And, and Prior to that, back in the early 90s, I had spent a lot of time working with a uh, L.A. um, comedy group called uh, Cold Tofu, which was a predominantly Japanese sketch comedy group. And we would rehearse in Japantown and and perform down there, the Japanese American Cultural Center. And so I spent a lot of time in J-Town. And with we have you know, we have, first and second if generation. Not, if, if you don't know LA, by the way, we have an amazing uh, Japantown. Yeah. Our our Japantown is about six or seven blocks wide. It's incredible, fantastic food, mm-hmm. great shopping. I, I I go down there minimum once a month. It's so cool. Who was in that troupe with you? Um, who's in that? Amy Hill. Oh sure, uh, we've had Amy Joy on Miyashima. the pod. <gasps> yes, oh she's amazing. She's great. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and it was interesting because there were people, you know, who were you know second generation uh, Japanese people, and working with them, I noticed certain little, you know, things like oh, and I realized oh, okay, that's how you say these words when you grow up around people speaking Japanese in the in the household, and so I applied that. So basically, I mean, technically, that doesn't, you know. Like, you know, Jack grew up speaking Japanese, right. you know, so he could have had a heavier accent. But my thing was, he's not speaking English. Right. We're now, you know, thousands of years in the future. Why would he be? He's going to be speaking his language. Right. But we wanted to to suggest, you know, his background. So we, we gave him. And also I was working with Mako. Uh, Mako Iwamatsu. Yeah. And most of the episodes, the, the only two people in the booth were him and me so mako an was, absolute it, legend uh oh among japanese actors in the original broadway cast of pacific overtures and in so right. many other is he oh god he's got there's a, there's a massive role i'm blanking on i'll fix it in the uh in the in the wraparound for the show <laughs> carry on <laughs> but yes i mean and i mean one it's pretty amazing to be in a room with somebody who like when you go to jerry's deli you look over and oh his name's above the title in that pacific overtures you know yeah but also you know mako was there to help keep us grounded you know mm -hmm. whenever there was a japanese word that jack was you know referring to from his past he would make sure we pronounced it right and you know and i you know took a little bit of his accent and a little bit of the accent voice that i'd you know known from my friends in cold tofu and those together you know were the samurai jack accent but mostly it was you know gendy and i used to describe the voice as a young asian clint eastwood because <laughs> he was he was always pulled back nothing required effort on his part because he is so strong so fast so good and so even that's fantastic um, the, uh, I, I had to frantically Google it. The, uh, the, the Schwarzenegger Conan movies. Make a, oh, he's yes. He's in the Schwarzenegger Conan movies. Yes. Um, may his memory be a blessing. Um, well, uh, actually it's funny because before I met Mako, I remember watching that movie and thinking that's brilliant because you've yeah. got a lead actor with an accent so hard to understand. Why not give your narrator an even heavier accent? This is the story of Conan. The Barbarian. So then when Arnold starts to talk, it's a little easier on the ear. It really is. It really is. Yeah, it's an amazing. Those movies age weirdly well. They're wildly diverse. Wilt Chamberlain acts in one of them. It's a, you know, James, James Earl, Earl Jones, Jones is a heavy, you know, they're wildly diverse. They're a ton of fun. Those movies, uh, for an early 80s action movie, they age pretty fucking well, man. That is not bad at all. Um, right. what, what was a role that was, was just within your grasp, uh, that, that slipped out? Was there a role that got away, Phil Lamar? <laughs> That's funny. Cause the vast majority of the roles I don't get are gone from my memory. Like good the minute I walk out of the door. Oh, like, good. For, I don't believe you, but good for you. Honestly, that's great. You know, cause, but there was one. Okay. In particular. Okay. <laughs> that I wanted so badly. Like, I, feel, this is me. I feel like there's smoke coming in from the side and you're going into black and white as you're talking about this. 
Um, well, because after West Wing, when Aaron Sorkin was doing Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, his TV show about the making of a sketch comedy show, late night sketch comedy show in L.A. Mm -hmm. And one of his characters was a cast member, a young African-American Yale graduate mm -hmm. who's on the cast of this late night sketch. I'm like, that's me. No, no one else should be auditioning for this. And they gave it to D.L. Hewley. Yes. Oh, dear. And I was so mad. Oh, dear. Until the show failed. And I was yeah, like, ha! No, no, I get that. No one's going to begrudge you that. <laughs> Nobody. You know, it breaks my heart. I don't know how familiar you are with the show, but we never actually got to see the entirety of Crazy Christians. That's an in-joke for the Studio 60 fans. Um, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Both um, of them? Uh, <laughs> um uh, what a you know! I watched that show knowing as much knowing the people I know who were on Mad, who who were on SNL, uh, right. the people who came up through those worlds. I watched that show. And I'm like, this isn't how it's like. And then I had the horrible epiphany: like, wait, is the White House not like that either? Oh fuck! <laughs> it was really eye opening, man. It was really, really. Uh, that was the, if you want to point to where John's uh, illusions die. <laughs> <laughs> oh That's man brilliant. phil lamar uh you're a goddamn delight thank you so much for doing this no thank you man i'm so i love the show so much and i'm so happy to be a part of this wonderful list of actors that you got on it oh you're a welcome addition man uh thank you so much we will talk soon and that is an episode wrap on Phil Lamar. You can find him on social media at Phil Lamar on both Twitter and Instagram. Futurama returns with new episodes on Hulu in 2023. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? <coughs>